This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Okay, good morning, everyone. Okay, uh, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we thank you for the new year and we thank you as well for your word which always guides us. And we pray for the Holy Spirit to be working in our hearts so that we can understand what your word is saying, so that we know the times that we live in. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, 2016 has been a a disappointing year for many people. You just read the news or you listen to the commentaries and many people feel that 2017 will not be any better. And people are generally very, not optimistic, but pessimistic about the state of our world. If I was reading an article which said that uh, at the end of 2016, the daylight is long forgotten and is a time of darkness. And I think that for Christians, uh, we even feel more acutely that uh, the world is a more unsafe and violent place. And that the world is actually not just godless, but becoming anti-God. And I was reading an article in a British newspaper saying that in England, because of the state of the world, many people who believe in God actually do not believe in God anymore, and Christians actually do not go to church as well. But why is the world the way that it is? Uh, And how do we respond uh, to this world? Well, today we are going to study a chapter from the book of Revelation. So I'm sure many of you who have been with us for a while will remember how we actually went through the whole book of Revelation before, and it was actually very helpful. Now, I know that in the popular media, uh, the book of Revelation is often misunderstood, where, you know, it's a, you know, when you watch the movies, it's always the mass murderer or the serial killer who's uh, reading from the book of Revelation. But I think that if we are misguided by popular culture, we lose so much because actually the book of Revelation has so much to tell us. And it tells us particularly about the times that we will or we are living in. So in chapter 1, verse 1, it tells us what the book of Revelation is about. And it says, The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So the book of Revelation is actually very helpful for us, and its central theme is the time that we live in. And I think it's so important for us as Christians to understand the time that we live in, because if we're not prepared for the time that we live in, we are often found to be uh, wanting, found wanting. So someone once told me about how the Russian Orthodox Church, just before the rise of communism and the collapse of the Soviet, uh, I mean, of all the religious structures in the Soviet Union, before this was happening, in the midst of this happening, they were actually discussing as their prime topic whether they should use one finger or two fingers in making the sign of the cross. And you sort of think that with the rise of communism and the persecution of Christians, there will be much more important things to talk about. But the church was unprepared for the rise of communism because it didn't know its time. Now today we are looking in uh, just one chapter. So uh, if you want to hear all the other sermons, you have to go to the internet to see all the old sermons. But we're looking at chapter 17. Chapter 17 tells us very specifically about the times that we're living in. So in verse 1 it says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, 
I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Now, the book of Revelation is filled with picture language. And that is one of the reasons why people have trouble with the book of Revelation, because they either take it too literally, or they don't understand what the pictures or the symbols mean. So here, we're not really being shown a great prostitute, as you know, we're looking for this great prostitute who's sitting by the beach over the water or something, right? But it's the symbolism of a great prostitute who sits on many waters. Now, what is the picture or symbol of a prostitute? Uh, the picture of a prostitute is someone who is alluring and seeking to seduce people, who is attractive and trying to tempt people into having uh, sexual activity. And we read here that the great prostitute of this world is very successful in drawing people to her, very successful in attracting and seducing the people of this world. Because the water that she sits upon represents the peoples and nations and cultures of this world. So in chapter 17, verse 15, it actually defines for us what exactly is the water that the prostitute is sitting on. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitutes sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. So the picture of the world that we're given, right, this very start of chapter 17, is that this world is being seduced or tempted or attracted by this great prostitute. And it's just not a few people, but the multitudes, the nations, the, the peoples, the nations of this world are seduced by her and drawn to her. But it's not just the peoples of the world, because when we look at chapter 17, verse 2, we read that the kings of the earth are drawn to her as well. The leaders of this world, uh, political, economic, cultural leaders, they're all drawn to her. Even religious leaders are drawn to her. And as a result, they are not just drawn to her, but they actually commit adultery with her. Now again, it doesn't mean that the nations and the cultures and the multitudes are having sex with the great prostitute. But to have adultery in the book of Revelation literally is the picture of spiritual adultery. It is the idea of actually turning away from their allegiance and loyalty to God and having adultery and turning their affections and love to the great prostitute instead. They're united in, in their adultery, in their oneness, instead of with God, but you're united with this great prostitute. You see, in the ancient world, uh, almost everybody was married. Okay? There were very few single people. So to have uh, um, sex with a prostitute was literally adultery. Right? You were turning away from your initial vows and your loyalty to your wife to have sex with a prostitute. And here we see that the world and the leaders of this world are seduced by this great prostitute to commit spiritual adultery with her and to turn away from God. But the image that we are given here is that not are they just committing adultery with this great prostitute. In verse 2 it says they are intoxicated. That means that as they commit adultery, spiritual adultery with the great prostitute, they become more and more high and merry and tipsy. And the spiritual adultery goes on and on and on, and they become 
more and more entranced and attracted to the great prostitute. Now, in verse 3, as we keep the image in mind, it says, Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And then I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. Now, in the book of Revelation, uh, we often find that uh, the, the, the association with desert uh, is the place where God brings uh, people to speak to them, to reveal things to them. And here again, we see the same thing because the writer of the book of Revelation was supposed to be John in the island in, as he was in exile in Patmos. And here, God brings him, so to speak, to a desert where the Spirit reveals to him what the world is really like. So he saw the picture of the great prostitute and now God opens his eyes to see the picture in the real world. Not the illusion, but the reality. He sees a woman presumably the prostitute, sitting on a scarlet beast, a red beast. And this red beast is described by three characteristics. He's like got tattoos of blasphemous names and he has got seven heads and ten horns. Now, in the book of Revelation again, numbers are very important. Particularly the numbers seven and ten. Seven keeps appearing, seven plagues, seven you know, bowls, seven, seven, seven. 10 is a very important number as well. So the numbers 7 and 10 represent the idea of fullness and completeness. So to have 7 heads and 10 horns shows that this beast has the fullness of power, fullness of authority. Now we understand the idea of a head, right? I mean the head is, is the authority, power. The horn is a picture of Power, you know, like the horn of an elephant or the horn of a rhinoceros or the horn of an antelope. It's a symbol of power. So to have ten horns is a picture of complete power. To have seven heads is a picture of complete authority. But here this beast uh, doesn't just claim human authority and human power. It actually aspires to claims of divine power. That's why its body is covered with blasphemous names. It's actually claiming to have the power of divinity and of God himself. And on this beast, which claims to have this great, great godlike power, is the woman herself, the great prostitute. But if you look at the woman, she's not dressed in a very slutty or tarty way. She's dressed in a very attractive way. And you can see why the world is drawn to her because she's dressed like royalty in rich clothes, dressed in purple and scarlet. Now, in those days, right, you know, it's not like, you know, you have Uniqlo and you go to the teacher section and you've got a gazillion colors to choose from. <clears throat> Only the very, very, very rich people could wear purple because purple could only be made in a very special way by, I don't know, taking some extract of some color and using some snails or something. I don't know, it's a very complex process. But only the very rich 
could wear purple. And the purple color was matched with red. And her arms and her neck and her dress were adorned with precious stones and pearls and gold. And her cup was made of, was a, not an Ikea cup, right? It was a golden cup. So you look at this beautiful picture of this woman dressed in this way, sitting on this beast which represents complete power and authority. And you can see why for many people she's so attractive. Because she represents power, authority. And actually, many people say that she also represents economic wealth. Because later on in the vision, the nations become rich through her. So all these things make her so attractive to the world. But God lets us see through her the illusion of power and authority and wealth into the reality of what she offers. And we see into the cup that she holds, because obviously it's not a glass cup, right? So you can't see. And you have to look from the top down into the cup. And the cup, it says, is filled with abominable things. And it's filled with filth. And what it's really saying is, as the world becomes intoxicated with adultery with the great prostitute, they also are intoxicated with drinking from this cup of abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. And they become drunk with the dark and the moral filth that she offers. And I think that 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 makes sense because when you look at the world, when the world becomes drunk on spiritual adultery and turning away from God, it so often becomes intoxicated with the dark things of this world. So as the world becomes more and more godless, so there's more and more godless behavior. If you look at the movies, if you look at internet, if you look at television, if you look at what the radio offers, you compare what we see today compared to say much, much earlier times where the world was a lot more Christianized, you will see there's so much more violence and rape and wickedness and sin and bad language, which is acceptable even on Channel 5, right? Now, in society, people talk about there's a breakdown of law and order, of marriages, the rise of divorce, of, you know, incest, of child molestation, rape, all these sort of things. And they say, oh, well, you know, in the past, they had all these things as well. It's just that people never reported it, right? But is it also the case that perhaps in the past, these things were less tolerated than they are today because people were more were more recognizing of God and God's law? I know that uh, in the last few days, if you read the newspaper, it says that we live in a post-truth era where people no longer value the truth and are willing to follow lies. But I wonder whether part of the reason is because people have also lost the value of truth because they don't seek God. I remember there was a quote that someone, um, uh, someone very, I can't remember who said it now, but it just popped into my head, about how someone in England many, many years ago said that uh, they no longer have good people who correct grammar. <laughs> okay? Uh, because they spotted a mistake in the newspaper. 
And I think Evelyn Waugh, somebody, some famous author said, it's because they no longer defrock priests for adultery. And then, so you sort of think, oh, how can that be, right? How is it the checking of grammar is because they no longer uh, defrock priests for grammar? And the reason is because if you no longer have high standards for the church, then they're saying there's a breakdown in standards in everywhere in society. And I think in a sense that's true, isn't it? Because if you don't no longer recognize God, and God no longer sets a standard for this world, then it allows the, the values of this world to be corrupted. And people no longer have a conscience to do what is right. But in verse 5, <coughs> the vision continues, the name written on her forehead, uh, now then again, this is such an obvious symbol, right? Because who goes around you know, with a tattoo in their forehead? Was a mystery. Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes and abominations of the earth. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Now it's interesting here because it says that the name on her forehead was a mystery. It was a mystery for people without God's revelation. But it was no longer a mystery to John and it's no longer a mystery to us because the angel has revealed to us the person or the character and the personality of this woman. And it is that she is Babylon the Great. Now obviously, a woman can't be a city, right? And the city can't be a woman. Again, it's a pictorial image of what she represents. Now Babylon, if you look up here, in the ancient world, was a great power. Okay, It was the capital of the Babylonian Empire. But in Israel's time, it became associated with all sorts of false religion which sought to corrupt the worship of God, Yahweh. But Babylon actually is a derivative of the word Babel. Okay, all the way back in Genesis. And Babel, back in Genesis, right in the beginning of the world, has always been a symbol of mankind's rebellion against God. So Babylon, Babel, represents man, the spirit of mankind's rebellion against God. In Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, next slide, it says that the sin of Babel was this, Come, let us build a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the earth. See, the, the sin of Babylon, of Babel, was mankind seeking to do its own will, make itself God instead of doing what God wanted it to do. God had said to the people to go to the world and to spread out and to, to fill the world. But what did man want to do? He wanted to not be scattered. He wanted to build a tower up to heaven itself to be like God and to do what God wants instead. Sorry, do what it wants to do instead of what God wanted it to do. So that's why when you read here that Babylon, the great, the mother of prostitutes, it actually tells us that what John is writing about here is not just for the people of his time, speaking of Rome and the Roman Empire, but it's speaking through the different ages, the different epochs, the different eras. Because the mother of prostitutes is like the spirit or the archetype or the, the, the model by which the whole world follows generation after generation. And here we see that the spirit of Babylon is still alive in the world today as it was in the time of John when he received this vision. 
So we see that godlessness, this Babylonian spirit, right, the rebellious spirit, is still in mankind today as it seeks to be seduced and attracted to this great prostitute. As they follow this great prostitute, they imbibe this Babylonian spirit, this Babel spirit of wanting to do what they want to do instead of what God wants it to do. So the other day, actually, it was just uh, three days ago, I had a chat with somebody I know, and he's a retired man and he has four children. And uh, we were just chatting and I won't tell you the content of our chat. But we were talking and we had a bit of a minor disagreement about something. And then he said that the most important thing for his children to be happy. He said, I don't tell them what to do. Uh, it's very important for them to have the freedom to do what they want to do to be happy. I thought to myself as I was preparing the sermon that that actually is the spirit of this age. And that's the spirit of Babel. To be happy and to have the freedom to do whatever you want to do. Because isn't that the spirit of Babylon and Babel? To choose what makes you happy and to choose your own freedom. Because actually, what God wants you to do no longer comes into the picture. And not what, God make, what makes God happy is no longer important to you, but what makes me happy is important. And that's why, because there is this spirit of happiness, the idolatry of happiness, the idolatry of freedom, that we live in a world and society which increasingly says that the worst thing you can say to someone is that they are wrong or what they are doing is sinful. Because if my God is freedom and my God is happiness, then the worst thing you can do is to attack my God and to say that I, I'm wrong to do what I'm doing, even if it makes me happy. And that's why today, toleration is the new God, where we must be willing to tolerate one another. So I was reading a, a book recently, and it talks about how casual sex is an expression of the God of happiness and of our uh, seeking of freedom. And you're saying that uh, in America, since abortions were legalized, there have been 55 million abortions. Right? So 55 million babies, which have the potential to be alive today, are now dead. Right? And this guy was saying in a very powerful way that these 55 million children uh, were basically sacrificed in order to worship the idol of happiness in casual sex. Because these children came about because the sex wasn't for procreating children, but for enjoyment. And because they were inconvenient to these couples, then they were killed at the idol of the happiness of casual sex. And I think in many ways that's true, isn't it? Because now... If happiness and freedom are so important, then nothing must get in the way of these gods. So again, you know, when you read the newspaper, it's always talking about how we live in the post-truth age. So I think yesterday in the newspaper, there were all these articles trying to explain why we live in a post-truth age. But I realized that it never says anything about God. So I did read a book, uh, which actually happened before Trump and Brexit and post-truth or whatever else. And this guy made a very good point. He said, you know, the difference today is it used to be that truth would govern our passions. So we seek truth about what God wants. We seek the truth about this world 
and we use these truths which govern our passions. So our passions are servient, are subservient or servants of the truth. So if I know the truth that marriage is very important, then I will seek to control my passions and lust and not commit adultery. If I know that the truth of how certain behavior is very bad, then I'll, I'll, I'll seek to control my, my passions. But today, because happiness and freedom is so important, my passions now control the truths which I'm willing to accept. And that's true, right? Because in many ways, nowadays, like I was reading some articles in the newspaper, even uh, the Singapore government says, when you talk to people who have uh, an idea of sexual freedom and, and uh, equal marriage and everything, there's no point, no point talking about truth because for them, the agenda or the passion is more important than the truth. So because I believe that homosexuality is something that I want, so therefore I believe the truth that homosexuality must be genetic. Regardless of whether I have evidence or not, I seek the truth in order to, to serve my passions. And because of that, we live in a world which is, in verse 6, uh, drunk on the blood of God's holy people. So because this great prostitute is full of adulteries, spiritual adulteries against God, and people are intoxicated with abominable things and the filth of adulteries, the logical conclusion that we read here is that she also is drunk on the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. So the world which is seduced by the great prostitute and the Babylonian spirit is not just godless, but it is anti-God. Right? There's a difference between being godless and anti-God. Here, it is actually anti-God against God's people. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 4, if you look up here on this slide, it actually shares the same idea where it says that because we are now transformed people, since Christ has suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for human evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. So here the idea is very similar. That people who bear testimony to Jesus in their behavior, in their words, will, will have abuse heaped on them. And actually in some parts of the world, as we see, it would actually lead to your death if you bear testimony to Jesus Christ. Just a, a few weeks ago, I was talking to someone who said that they work in a very large multinational company in America. And, and somebody else actually told me the same thing in Australia, that they are very reluctant to say that they are Christian in uh, these companies in Australia and America. Uh, because now with the transgender and homosexuality issue, being a Christian is being seen as being intolerant and homophobic. And even if you are to declare that you are a Christian, uh, this person said to me in quite an interesting way, they said, oh, well, they don't want you to say anything because they don't want you to be involved in politics. 
Now I found that to be a very interesting uh, use of uh, semantics and words, right? Because uh, politics is now used to define testimony of Jesus Christ. You know, if you now say you're a Christian and you believe in certain things, that is now politics and you're not allowed to be involved in politics. But I wonder how that is politics because if you actually say what Jesus is saying, isn't that uh, basically making a stand for Jesus Christ? How is that politics? You're not starting a political uh, you know, party. You're just saying what is right or wrong. And in a generation ago, which would have been perfectly acceptable to say, why are you not allowed to say these things? But that's exactly the spirit of this age. Uh, the spirit of a Babylonian spirit, the spirit of the great prostitute, where uh, it hates and it heaps abuse on those who bear the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now in verse 6, we see um, John, uh, the writer, actually come into the picture. It says, When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Now this is John speaking. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast, she writes, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, yet will come out of the beast and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. Now when John sees this picture, he is astonished. He's astonished in a fearful troubled way, in an appalling way, because he sees the spiritual adultery and the great seduction of this great prostitute. He's astonished because he sees the power and authority of the beast and the woman. He's astonished because he sees the abomination and the filth that she brings. But the angel says, why are you astonished in this way? Because he reminds John of the purpose of the vision, which was in chapter 7, verse 1. What was chapter 17, verse 1 say? I will show you the, the punishment of the great prostitute. So the vision that John sees is actually a precursor to the great punishment that the great prostitute will receive. So even though the beast seems very powerful, the woman and the beast will actually be punished in the end. You notice there's a phrase which keeps being repeated, which describes the beast. It once was, now is not, yet will come. Now, this is the same way that actually God was described in chapter 1. Right? So if you look at chapter 1, look at the way God is described right at the very beginning. Right? Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was, and who is to come. Verse 8. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is, and who was, and who is to come. So the great beast here is almost like God in this description. But the great difference is that his origin is satanic. He comes out of the abyss, it says, in verse 8. And he will go to his destruction. Now, therefore, the spirit of this world which claims this God-like power and claims almost to have the power of God 
is very different from God who was and who is and will come. Because his origin is satanic and of the devil. And of the end will be different too because ultimately the prostitute and the beast will go to their destruction. And the people who follow the prostitute and the beast will go to their destruction as well. You notice here in verse 8 right onwards, it says that the inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast. Now isn't it interesting because John was astonished when he saw the beast and the prostitute. The people of the earth who are not written in the book of life, they are astonished too. But their astonishment is different from the astonishment of John. You see, earlier on, in chapter 13, it says that their astonishment, our next slide, was one of wonder, of one of worship, and of following the beast. In verse 4, men worship the dragon when he had authority, when he had given authority to the beast, and they also worship the beast and ask, who's like the beast and who can make war against him? See, the astonishment of this world is an astonishment of the power and the authority of the beast. They're seduced by the beast and the great prostitute. And because of that, from the very beginning of the world, their names are not written in the book of life. So what is the application? How should we respond to this world then? How should we live in this world? Should we then give up, like the people in the newspaper saying, well, the world is so terrible, let's give up following God, let's give up following Jesus Christ. Well, in chapter 8, 18 verse onwards, uh, we're going to skip all the way because the rest of the uh, passage is quite uh, difficult as well and we don't have time to go through as to who are the different heads and the different beasts and I'm not sure whether I can actually give you a concrete answer in the end. But the application comes in chapter 18 verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven. And God has remembered her crimes. See, we as God's people, as we see the seduction of this world by the great prostitute, the adultery, the spiritual adultery, turning away against God, the abominations and the filth of her adulteries, and the the total turning away of nations and uh, language and people and the kings of this earth, We are not to be seduced by the great prostitute. We are to resist her seduction. We are not to compromise, but we are to come out of her. Now, it doesn't mean, again, literally that we, you know, okay, uh, what we're going to do now is we're all going to save a lot of money and go to some desert island in the middle of the ocean so that we're not part of this world. But to come out of this world means that we are to resist her seduction, her allure, her temptation, to commit spiritual adultery, to be one with the great prostitute. We are to resist the Babylonian spirit and the Babel spirit of today, which seeks to make ourselves God and to do our own will. But instead, we are to continue to stand firm in Jesus Christ. Even as the world turns against us and becomes more hostile and more dangerous for us as Christians. We're not to be astonished anymore like John because we've seen the world as it really is and we know the end. We know that in the end, uh, this great prostitute and the beast, 
and the world and the people of the world who follow that great spirit of attraction of the Antichrist will be judged. And therefore, because we know the times of today and the future of judgment, we mustn't take part in this world. And it's anti-God, it's godless, and it's immorality. I remember a very powerful illustration that I heard in Australia, and only Australians can make these illustrations because they're so uh, kind of like uh, a bit uncouth in a way. But this guy, uh, he ended the sermon by saying, dead dogs can swim with the current. Even dead dogs can swim in the current. And it's a picture of how, you know, uh, in Australia when there's a river flowing, right? Uh, sometimes you find uh, dead animals in the, in the river, right? And, uh, and, and even dead animals can swim with the current, right? With, with the flow of the river, because the flow of the river is pushing them down the river. And the current of this world, as we've seen, and God has showed us, this is not Andrew speaking, right? This is what God has said through John, is that the current of the world, the flow of this world, is towards a godless, anti-God seduction of immorality, of abomination and filth. And that is the flow of the world, that is the current of the world, the world is seduced by these things. But we are to swim against the current of this world. We are to go against the flow of this world. We are not to share in the wickedness and the godlessness of our times and of every time till Jesus comes. We are not to share in the punishment reserved for the prostitute and the beast because we are God's people. We belong to the kingdom of light. We bear the testimony of Jesus Christ. So I hope that as we know the times that we live in, we do not despair. We are not astonished in a fearful way as we look at the world in 2016, coming to 2017, moving forward. We actually see that the world is exactly as God says it is and it will be. Instead, we are to continue to hold on to our faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that judgment, that condemnation, that punishment are coming. And that there will be a time where the insecurity, the wickedness and the godlessness of this world will be wiped off and where Jesus will bring his new kingdom. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we live in a very uncertain time, a time where people of this world are questioning what is happening. But dear Father, we know that as creator, as sovereign God, as sustainer of all things, you have given us a picture of the world as it really is. Dear Father, help us to see that this world is seduced and tempted and allured and in the midst of being united in adultery with the great prostitute which seduces this world with an anti-God spirit, a spirit which allows them to indulge in their sinful nature of immorality, of wickedness, abominations, where our world, as it continues to be intoxicated and drunk in its anti-God Babylonian spirit, will hate Christians because we stand for what is right. We stand for Jesus Christ. We are willing to call out what God says is wrong. But dear Father, we pray that we may persevere and not be seduced by this world, but resist its temptations and to stand firm to Jesus Christ in all things.
because we know that judgment is coming and the sins of this world are being piled up high. And we pray for ourselves that we will never be part of those sins as we stand in Jesus Christ till he comes again. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.